Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. In part two of my chat with Helen Joyce, we dive into the topic of puberty blockers like Luprit. What are they? Why are they being prescribed to children? What was the original indication for this drug by the FDA? And are there any long-term deleterious effects? We then talk about boys in transition being told by medical doctors and clinicians that someday they can give birth as a female due to a uterus transplant. These discussions are really happening and framed as hopeful and positive for the child. We explore why America has 300 gender-affirming clinics today and counting, while the UK has one, Tavistock, and why this matters. We discuss the very controversial debate about causal versus corollary suicides with our trans community. Helen then educates me on a medical term called cascade of intervention, what it means, why does it matter with our trans community. We talk about the 4,400% increase in teenage girls identifying as male versus female over the past decade. And attached to that discussion, we then talk about something called rapid onset gender dysphoria. Is it a possible answer to this massive wave of young girls identifying as male? Why are female-only spaces so important? And why will they never be a safe space for a biological male? And of course, we talk about the term TERF. What is it and why is it so toxic? I hope you enjoy the show. So I care a lot about it, but I also I care more about the kids who are being sterilized, I have to say, and I care more about well, the women in prisons. That is a great, because that I wanted to get to, um, specific to the GNHR stuff. I, so my research, again, is, is cursory compared to yours, but I, the one thing as a layperson that I wanted to talk with you about was the GRNH receptors, which is, the, which is a Liberty hormone. Liberty they call them. Yeah. Liberty, right? And from that, there was, I think it was in your book, that was Luprin is a, the drug prescribed yeah. for that. The FDA approval on Luprin as a hormone inhibitor was originally designed for something called precocious puberty. Am I right? And so that that was, can you explain that? And then, and then again, that sure. this is not, per, this, this has not been approved for the specific indication that you're talking about for postponing puberty in uh, trans healthy kids. children, ordinary children. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I never yes. say trans kids because trans kid makes it sound like you know which kids are going to identify as trans when they're growing okay. up. And as we've discussed, right. most of them won't. So I just talk about gender dismissed kids. Okay. So um, what, what, it, what it is, is the way that puberty works is it's a complex cascade of things, but there's, there's one signal that starts it all. And that tells your ovaries or your testicles to produce the flood of estrogen or testosterone that does its magic and turns you into a grown-up. doesn't just work on your body, it works on your brain too. Our brains get really reshaped in puberty. But suppose you've got a kid who's um, dreading the onset of puberty. And the thing is, puberty is what resolves it for these kids, but they're also terrified. 
And if you have foolishly socially transitioned them, if you said to a three or four or five or six year old kid, yes, okay, you re, you know, you, we'll pretend that you're a member of the opposite sex. They don't think about the real sex. They pass well. Puberty comes along as a horrific, absolutely horrific moment. Like suppose a little boy has been told since he's four that he's really a girl. Everybody thinks he's a girl. He's very happy being a little girl. He's, yeah. you know, he just every, everything seems happier. And then somebody says, oh, you know, 12, your voice is going to break. Your shoulders are going to sprout. You're going to, you know, get a beard. Like that's absolutely horrifying. That would be like me having to undergo yeah. that. So because this social lie this social transitioning has become so common, the next thing you have to do is you have to postpone the puberty because the puberty is something horrendous for a child like this. So you do this by switching off the signal. And that's done with these two drugs, one or other of them, they're basically the same thing, Lupron and Triptorenin. Americans use Lupron more. Um, we have those drugs for several purposes. They're used in very severe um, sex-related cancers. They're used by adults for breast cancer and so on. Drugs, cancers, okay. that, yeah, cancers that are made worse by your sex hormones and prostate cancer okay. as well. So a cancer that testosterone or estrogen will make grow faster, you shut down the production of those hormones. They thrust you into an immediate overnight menopause, complete and utter menopause in oh. one day. It's horrendous. Wow. You have the full menopause symptoms 10 times worse. They suggest not using them for more than six months. It's so severe. Wow. They're also, so the only pediatric use, the only licensed use for children is in what's called precocious puberty, which is when that signal thing that I talked about sets off years earlier than it should. I'm talking about like five or six. And then you end up so really physically early. mature child really early. Like if it's after eight or nine, okay. they won't use it. They'll just say, oh, this child is going to puberty early. But like if you imagine a five or six year old who goes into puberty and has the feelings, like the physical feelings, the sexual feelings that come with adulthood, but this child's just six. That right. child's in a really difficult position. That child's going to be um, possibly predated upon. Uh, yeah. They're going to be very short, actually, as well, because they go into puberty without growing first. So there's a bunch of things. So they That's use what it. I was going to ask. Does that, yeah. does that actually affect their eventual growth? Yes, does it they does. Just go, okay, so they just go through, like, beard, pubic hair... It's mostly no. girls it happens to, but, um, okay. you know, and that just means that they're, they're prey, they're prey to people. So it's yeah. a really serious issue. You know, it's, it, this isn't okay. done for nothing, giving children no. this drug for, like this, this yeah. drug that's used for cancer to little children. Okay. Right. And even then, some of the people have been given us to say that it's, you know, it causes brittle bones, it's given them constant pain and so on in adulthood. And one of the use they use it for is um, chemically castrating sex offenders. So, you know, we're not talking okay. about a, li a little drug here. We're talking about a big drug. It's here. a serious drug. Okay. This is serious. This is not like, yeah. oh, let's just delay puberty. Puberty blocker is like this minimizing name for it. It's like talking about top surgery when actually it's double radical mastectomy. So, yeah, but that was the thinking was you've got these kids who are practically suicidal at the thought that puberty is coming along. Let's delay it a bit and see if this all resolves. And if it doesn't resolve, well, they'll be older and now they'll be old enough to consent to cross-sex hormones. Because until recently, we wouldn't give cross-sex hormones to kids who are under 16. But the whole thing is just ridiculous, partly because they're stopping the pain that makes you mature. You're not going to grow up ordinarily if your puberty is stopped. Puberty does things to your brain as well. So it's, it was, in my opinion, an incredibly flawed thing to do in the first place. The second thing is that they've discovered, now they didn't know this before they started, but they've discovered that almost every child who starts on puberty blockers will decide to go on to cross-sex hormones. So that surprised me the most, because it was opposite yeah, that was of the exactly. Blanchard studies. 
Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that, that, to me too, that was a real aha moment for me. Um, it's it, it, they don't know the details, but obviously it stops the process whereby the gender dysphoria, the gender discomfort resolves. It freezes you. It it, it just. It plays into the whole thing that your puberty is something to be afraid of. It takes away. I mean, you know, I have a very close gay relative younger than me. And, um, you know, I knew he was gay when he was little because he was one of these quite effeminate kids. Very sweet, lovely little kid. And I looked at him and thought, you know, if you're straight, you're a really unusual straight kid. (laughs) And it was 13 when he told me that he was gay because his body told him. So what if I had shut off his body telling him that he was gay? I would, you know, I would have stopped the process whereby he understood himself. And when you remember that most of these gender non-conforming little kids, if you just leave them to it, they'll grow up gay. You're stopping the moment where the body reveals to the child why they're different from other kids. You're doing this incredibly profoundly misconceived thing. It's done with kindness, I know that, but it is so misconceived. And parents aren't told any of this. They're just told, oh, your child is a trans child. That's why I don't use that expression. Your child is a trans child. You know, we can sort it all out. And little children, they also believe really, they're very concrete thinkers. They don't understand that adults use words differently from them. So I watched a heartbreaking documentary a few weeks ago. It's it's a few years old, but I watched it again. And it's what this this perfect, beautiful little boy who's like the little boys that, um, that Richard Green wrote about absolutely born gay. Like this child is just, he's going to come out as gay, you know? Instead, he says, I'm a girl. His mother goes to the doctor. The doctor refers him to the gender clinic. The gender clinic says, you know, well, we'll socially transition you. He starts wearing like levels of makeup and frills and pink and sparkles and things that no little girl that I had anything to do with would be allowed to wear at age seven, you know? And then there's this conversation in the clinic when he's eight or nine. Now they're all calling him she and a girl's name, but this is a bit important. and he he says that, you know, by now he thinks he is a girl. He thinks they mean it. He thinks they mean they can turn him into right. a woman, right? He really thinks it. And he says that he's been watching a film about how when he grows up, he can be a mother. And there's this sort of silence and the clinician and his mother look at each mm-hmm. other. And, and this little boy says, I'll have to go to Sweden um, for a, um, a cesarean section. I know that. I know that I won't be able to give birth in the same way as other women because I'm going to need a womb transplant. And you realise this poor little boy for five years has actually believed the grown-ups who said to him, yeah, we can make you into a girl. He doesn't mean what they mean. They mean we can sterilise you and we can chop your penis and testicles off and we can create a non-functional pretend vagina for you. He thinks they're going to turn him into a girl, which is what he wants more than anything. It's the most appalling. It's, it's It's horrendous. It makes me weep when I watch it. You know, it's... It's a lie for kind, it's a lie out of kindness. There's a word for it. Um, it's, it's like a cowardly lie, you know. It's done for the best of intentions, but it's trapped everybody in this path. And so they end up not saying to this little boy, because it's five years too late. They don't say to him, no, no, you're never going to be a mother. That's right. The bloody clinician says it's experimental technology. It's important to have hope. And that flies over this child's head, and he thinks he's going to be Someday a real, you'll give birth. Full, true woman who can get babies, get pregnant, nine months pregnant and so on. It's absolutely shocking to me. So all these children who are being socially transitioned, they really think the grown-ups mean it. They think that we mean it when we say you're really a girl or really a boy. They think that they're being told they can have what they want. The thing is, 
I'd give them what they want if I could. If I was actually able to change people's sex and a child said to me, I don't like being a boy, I want to be a girl. I can imagine saying, yeah, sure, fine. I can't do it. You can't do it. It's not possible. So it's a lie to children. Well, there's a couple things around that that surprised me in your book. One of which is, and I want you to elaborate on to both of them, but one, you mentioned that they, we don't know how many kids are on hormonal inhibitors because we're not counting them. That yep. was shocking. And then Tavistock, which we don't know about here in the United States. Can you talk about those two things? Sure. <laughs> the fact that we're not counting and then what Tavistock's role in this is specifically. So, so think about how, what it would mean if you were counting. Like I, I used to be a, stat- a statistician. I worked for the Royal Statistical Society and I often talked to MPs, like members of parliament, about statistics. And MPs commonly come and say to you, tell me how many people in my constituency you know, drive Morris Miners. You're like, how would I know that? Who's counting that? Like, nobody's counting it. So why would someone be counting all the kids who are going to these gender clinics? Because they're popping up all over the place. There's all these people who, you know, there's no, there's no law against prescribing this stuff. Anyone can call themselves a gender specialist. It's not a, it's not a, a licensed term. And media have been pumping stuff out for years and years about how, you know, there are trans kids, pictures of little boys, you know, that we're told are called Fifi Trixie Bell and they're wearing pink and, you know, everybody understands that this child is really a girl in some sense. So there's just lots of it going on. It's not being tracked. There are at least 60 large pediatric full-service clinics in America and there were about two 15 years ago. But that's not where the action is. The action is in you know, just non-specialist therapists and so on who will prescribe these things after pretty much no meeting and so on. You can just shop around and get them. So what's interesting about the clinic here in the UK is with a very different healthcare model. I should say, I don't think the Tavistock is the worst clinic in the world by any means. I think what you've got in the US and Canada is far worse. You're the Wild West. But the thing about the Tavistock is that it's a part of the NHS, the National Health Service, and it's the only clinic in England for minors the only gender clinic the only one yeah it's a specialist service and kids are referred to it from elsewhere that may change soon but anyway um they were they run a couple of um satellite clinics but they just count as the Tavistock. it's all one place it's formally called jids the gender identity development service so it's it, it does what the nhs often does for the world on medical statistics it's the best medical statistics there are because it's the only nationwide, serves everybody, single payer, single. And we have statistics on everything here in healthcare. It's brilliant. So everything that happens about the Tavistock tells you probably what's happening elsewhere, but they're not counting. We are counting here. Okay, so so Tavistock is is counting. It's we're not here in the States and Canada. Exactly. Now, the Tavistock is counting, but what it's not doing is following up. So that's actually really terrible because they could really easily. I mean, if you've got like one clinic and you had everybody's records and it's free, you can make it a condition that they stay in touch. I mean, every person in this country has an NHS number and that number follows you around. If you move house, you register with a new doctor, they ask you for that number. So it's the best healthcare records in the world. Like some people have duplicate numbers. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm just saying it's the best. They could be tracking these kids. And the thing that really, really, really annoys me So because, as I said, I did fertility treatment, when I did fertility treatment in the 2000s, um, I had to pay 100 quid for every cycle of IVF I did extra that only went to keep records of my IVF cycle so that they could watch and see if there were any um, higher incidence of birth defects or something like that. 
And that was a rule. That was a rule that was imposed by the national regulator on all IVF clinics in Britain. And so, again, we have the best statistics in the world on IVF, the outcomes, the success rates, how the kids are, all that sort of thing. So we should have done that. And longitudinally as well, right? I mean, exactly, that's the important exactly. thing. Yeah, yeah. Every IVF, every single IVF cycle was registered and yeah. every single IVF cycle will be IVF clinic had to report the outcomes for the regulator. Why the hell are we not doing that with gender medicine? All of it. Well, so that would be my question to you. You've done the homework. Why is this not mandatory? So, or what, it, what would be the reason not to do it? It's it a sort of like- trans-exceptionalism. Every time the word trans is said, everything that we do ordinarily flies out the window. So it's, it's you know, it's when, when they're telling us that we must medicalize children in ways that obviously are going to be harmful to children's health. You know, we're messing with their hormones, we're messing with their fertility, we're, by the way, messing with their sexual function. Nobody any, anywhere in the world has followed up on this. There has never been a study done on whether the children who have had their puberty blocked really early then went on cross-sex hormones, whether they'll ever have an orgasm. We think they won't, because it's during and puberty you- that you become orgasmic. But nobody has done right. that study. Nobody has done that study. I think they're too squeamish. They're thinking of these children as sort of little sainted people. But anyway... Whenever you want to say, why are you doing these crazy things to children's bodies? They'll say, because the children, it's the most severe distress you could imagine. These children have this terribly difficult medical condition. They will kill themselves if you don't do it. And then you're like, well, okay, so this is really major. You're you're talking about the sort of treatment we'd only give children if they had terminal cancer. Like the only thing I would sterilize a child for is to save their life. That's it. The only thing. Has and, the sterilization and, been proven? I'm sorry to interrupt. No, if, if you start puberty blockers very early, like basically yeah. right at the start of puberty over four, and then you go on to cross-sex hormones, you will be sterile. You will. And you will, you will. Because, okay. because there's, there's no sterility to protect. You don't start producing sperm as a boy until you hit puberty. So there's no sterility, there, right. there's no fertility to, to, to protect, but also you become orgasmic at this point too. So girls will have eggs because we're born with all our eggs. We're special, um, but they aren't mature and we don't know how to mature those eggs in vitro. So, yeah. So I if you stop that, so, yeah, that, so if you, if a lot never, of things too then, yeah. I'm if sorry, your gonads okay. never mature, if your testicles and your ovaries don't even go a bit along the way of puberty, you are sterile. And of course, if you then go and have them removed with the surgeries when you're 18, you're, you're completely sterile. Like, there's just no question about sure. it. But yeah, so these people are sterilizing these children. They're not just messing with their fertility, they're sterilizing them, right? I would only do that to save a child's life. But then when you say to them, look, this is very strong medicine. This is like really dangerous, this protocol. At the Tavistock, because we have the figures, we know they put three 10-year-old girls on puberty blockers last year, maybe the year before. Ten-year-old, these kids are going are sterile. We know they're going to end up on testosterone. That's what the figures tell us. These girls have had their fertility taken from them at age 10. And they didn't have a conversation. This came up in a court case. So for once, the doctors were forced to answer difficult questions. And the um, the lawyer for the the examining lawyers said, well, did you have that conversation with the girls? And the answer was, they're too immature to have it. Like, we asked did they have it with the parents? They, yeah, they, uh, but I mean, I don't think parents have the right to take their children's fertility either. No, I don't either, but I, it, it would, you know, you know if I try to believe make their it... daughters are going to kill themselves. If you believe that people are going to kill themselves. That's another narrative that I couldn't find, because I've had this discussion as well on separate issues not just the druggists, but the trans in general, dead naming, shaming, they cruelty. Will kill themselves. 
they will kill themselves. And they always point to causal data. And I, ha- I have never found any. And the reason I've, no. And, and that's another thing too. I, my little brother took his own life from depression and drugs. And so I dove deep into that. I wanted to understand, is there causal connections for anything to do with you know, the abuse he went through or any of that? And there's corollaries, tons of them. And you can play with covariates all day long, but there's no causal data. So that's another thing that you talk about, I think, in a, in a wonderful way, is that this notion that if you don't allow transition, then suicide is almost guaranteed. Yeah, and that's and not that, proven in the data either. It, it's disproven. Yes. And okay, again, we can look at the, again, we can look at the Tavistock because we, can, we know the kids right. who are waiting for treatment and who got treatment. Now, the suicide rate's a bit higher than in the general sure. population gets very, very few kids kill themselves, thankfully. Yeah. And, and, and for, the rate is, you know, two or three times, if I remember correctly. But anyway, it's, 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 it's noticeably, noticeably higher, still very, very low. But anyway, these kids are very distressed and not because yeah. of their gender. Um, the, the, um, the Tavistock has usefully said that about a third of the kids that they see um, are on the autistic spectrum. And they see a, a lot third. of kids who are a third. And, and that wow. is standard. that's very standard okay. around the world, more in many clinics. The kids are on the autistic spectrum, they're anxious, they're depressed, they're very isolated. Um, Suicide is actually slightly more common in gay kids than it is in other kids. And remember that these kids are by and large gay. So they're they're not at all different. What what the the Tavistock said is the most useful way to put it. These kids aren't any more suicidal than other kids who are seeing mental health services, which are a vulnerable population. So it's not true. It is not true that children Mm. who identify as trans are at any very noticeable high risk of suicide. I mean, anorexia, for example, is far, far, far worse and more dangerous. And yet we don't use that as an excuse for going along with what the child tells us about what weight they are and what they should eat. So then the second thing you must ask yourself is, well, would would transition help? Because, you know, an elevated risk of suicide is not good, even if it's not like certainty. There's no evidence, none at all, that transition actually lowers the chance of suicide. And I have to say, when I look at some of these kids who've been lied to about what they're being sold, who've been missold, they think that they're getting a real genuine sex change. What's that person's future life going to be like? You know, have we done something that's really reduced their risk of suicide by doing that? And the final thing I would say, which is possibly the most important thing to take away on the suicide narrative, is that it is very, very, very dangerous to tell people that people with their characteristic are more likely to commit suicide because suicide is contagious. So we do not, it's why journalists get handbooks on uh, suicide here. It's called the Samaritans, the charity. There's a a handbook for journalists on reporting on suicide. You don't go into detail on methods. You don't uh, associate the suicide with a particular life events or particular characteristics because somebody who reads, oh, this is how this lovely person killed themselves and they kill themselves because of this. And they think, oh, I'm like that too. That person right. has, had, has had a contagious event. And here we are breaking those rules merrily by saying that trans-identified kids are likely to kill themselves. It's absolutely appalling. It's one of the most unethical things that happens in all of this. But the reason they're saying it is because there's just no way they'd be allowed to give these drugs otherwise. So, so the switcheroonie that happens is they, um, they say you have to give them these drugs because it's such a serious condition. It's so terrible. They're so suicidal. And then over here, they're like, do you know what? It's all good. It's a gender journey. 
trans kids aren't mentally ill, they're just children with gender variants. And so what if they detransition down the line? This is who they were meant to be. It was a journey. This is the latest expression. You wait, you'll hear it, mm. gender journey. So when detransitioners come back and say, you didn't help me, I came to you, you never asked me, but actually I experienced child sexual abuse. You didn't ask me, but I was cutting myself and I was depressed. You didn't ask me about the bullying I was getting right. because I was a lesbian. Um, and those are the things I transitioned. And now I have no breasts and I have no ovaries and I have no uterus and I've got a broken voice and I have to shave every day and my hairline is receding. And those bloody clinicians say to them, it was a gender journey. You know, now you're on the next stage of your gender journey. And it's like, well, if it was a gender journey, can we not be giving them these women drugs that we give to sex offenders and to people with cancer? Yeah, and, and there's because there's no longitudinal studies, we don't know, because we're not following the people that are detransitioning. So we don't actually know. Because one of the questions that I had immediately was if you have a, because I actually have a, a, an acquaintance from the media world who's little boy has gone, gone through this for three years. The biological little boy has been transitioned to a little girl. These parents have to make that decision here in America. Yes, it's tough. I'm very sorry for them. Yeah. Me too. It breaks my heart. And the question then is, because a lot of the literature from the gender clinics and from a lot of the advocates in general is that there is no irreversible damage. They say that in their literature. And you're saying the exact opposite is that yeah. there's proof that it is sterile. It will sterilize you done let's just say you don't even they're starting them they're start they're they're saying if you socially transition your child it's not irreversible that's true obviously if you would have that part is you can take it off and put on you know some other right the thing is that's the start of a treadmill that people hardly ever get off once someone socially transitions and gets used to everyone thinking of them as the other sex, they're going to ask for puberty blockers. Once they get puberty blockers, they take cross-sex hormones. It's, called, yes. it's called a cascade of intervention in medicine. Okay. And um, I don't know if you've had kids uh, with your wife, um, but if you... I have two little boys. Right. So you, you may remember from the sort of courses that you may have gone on before you had the baby, your first baby, that people will tell you that if you have a cesarean, you're more likely to need forceps. Sorry, if you have um, an epidural, you're more likely to need forceps or a cesarean. That's called a cascade of intervention. Once you start intervening, you have to intervene more. Got it. That's the first time I heard that expression was in prenatal classes. And there's a really strong cascade of intervention with gender. Like, you know, if you've got a little boy who's four and who says he, he feels like he's really a girl and you put him in a dress and he's ecstatic about it all and everyone calls him she and he just feels much better and happier. At what point is this boy going to say, do you know what? This has been lovely for the last five years. I've loved everybody telling me that I'm a girl. I feel so natural like this. I feel great. I love dresses. I like going to ballet, blah, blah, blah. Let's stop. No, they want their puberty blockers. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so the, the, the little and um, the little gay boy that I knew, you know, it was a bit difficult to navigate how you live in this world as a highly, highly feminine boy. But, but it doesn't help to pretend that you're not a boy like that. That takes away all the opportunities to grow and to be an unusual boy. Mm. Like we don't live in the same homophobic times as Richard Green did. Those highly unusual little boys need to be supported in being highly unusual. They need to be praised and given space. And when they say, I want to do ballet, you go, yeah, you do ballet, great stuff. You know, what instrument do you want to play? I want to play the harp. Lovely, go play the harp, you know. Give them a chance to work out how to be a highly unusual boy or a highly unusual girl with support. Then puberty doesn't feel terrifying. You don't need to stop it. You go through puberty. One day you're looking at a film poster and you think, huh, 
I'm looking at the person who's the same sex as me and I think that person is really, really gorgeous. And then you think, ah, right, all makes sense. This is in a perfect world. And then you go and tell your parents and your classmates and they say, yeah, you know, I kind of knew that, but fine, great. You're lovely. (laughs) You know, that's the perfect world and that's the world we should be working towards. But instead, we're sterilizing these kids. Oh, yes. Well, you mentioned that something else because I I know I want to cover a couple of things. We've already gone an hour and 45 minutes. So I I'm willing to, to talk as long as you are. I love it. I'm so happy about this because I've, I've, again, I'm very interested in this at a long term. We're going to interview as many people as humanly possible at, at True 30 because we as journalists and media people are trying to figure this out. You also talked about, which I think is a really good segue, specific to contagion, to teenage girls. Yeah. So that's something that historically, even as an older man, I understood transsexuals as men, to your point, in their 30s, 40s, realize that I need to be a woman and they do the whole transition and they're now transsexual and that's the thing. Yeah, and, that's what there was. I, I, I never really, and it, to me, the statistics older were male to, male to female more often. Now, what, and this is, there's a young lady and I can't remember her name, uh, Abigail, I think, who wrote it. Uh, Abigail Schreier, yes. Yes, Abigail Schreier, specific to um, this rapid onset contagion. I, I can't yeah. remember the acronym, but it, it, please talk about that because that was also very surprising to me and startling, scary startling. So, so before about 2011, there was no mention in the literature of teenage girls um, identifying. Okay, well, there we go. That's why. Literally yeah. none, right? Now, um, there are about two-thirds of what gender clinics see worldwide. is Two-thirds? Yeah. So they have taken over from all of it. On the plus side, these kids have already gone through a bit of puberty, so unless you actually give them hysterectomies, you're not sterilising them. Okay, that's good. Yeah. On the downside, the effects of giving testosterone to females is much greater than the effect of giving estrogen to males. Testosterone is like a one-way, a one-way street. It's like the, you know, easily in but not easily out, so the lobster in the lobster pot. (laughs) <laughs> Everything that happens to you with testosterone can't be unwound. When your voice breaks, it can't unwind. Correct. Correct. Now, when you know when the hair is fragile all over your body, like my my follicles on my skin are the same as yours. If I take a burst of testosterone for long enough, they'll sprout, and I won't be able to unsprout them. Same with the beard. So once you've got your beard, your broken hair, your receding hairline, hair all over your body, you can't undo that. So you are now not going to pass very easily as a woman ever again. Ever. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I know quite a lot of detransitioned females now, and it really varies. Like, a lot of it depends on how much the voice dropped. And mm-hmm. in particular, the hair, like a girl who turns out to have male pattern baldness as soon as she takes testosterone and loses right. all her hair is really going to struggle. Whereas there are other girls for whom, you know, they just have an unusually deep voice. And, you know, the fact is right. they have to shave, but nobody need to know that. So, yeah. So why does this happen to teenage girls? Well... One of these sex difference things, it turns out that teenage girls are the group who are most prone to social contagion. Now we're all prone to social contagion. All of us think and do things that are just the ideas that are around us and some ideas spread very easily. But teenage girls tend to be like the canary in the coal mine on this. Okay. So that's why eating disorders spread through friendship groups. It's why um, once a girl in, in a class starts cutting, other girls start to cut. It's why it's a very bad idea to tell teenage girls about behaviours that are maladaptive, that they should avoid, because they start doing it. 
So a friend of mine who's a bit younger than me, she's in her mid forties. Um, I was I was mercifully older. That it, when I was a teenager, they really, the whole um, anorexia bulimia thing hadn't kicked off. So this friend who's ten years younger than me was telling me that when she was in secondary school some fool sent an information video about bulimia to schools and they watched it and it was like you know some some girls binge and then throw up to try to control their weight and she said in this video they said that some of the girls use their toothbrush to make themselves sick and she said i kid you not a week later there were 12 girls in my class sticking their toothbrush down their throat to make themselves sick oh man i told that story to one of the detransitioners i know who has an eating disorder and that's what it started with for her and her face just, she just went like, I, I nearly cried when I looked at her because I thought how insensitive it was of me to say this because she teared up and her voice kind of, her throat kind of closed up and she went red and she said, but that's how I make myself sick. And I thought, oh God, this wretched video that got handed out in the 1990s. And here I am in 2020 or so talking to a girl who was sterilized irreversibly, had her uterus removed when she was 21 in the name of something insane, who has an eating disorder, who was a lesbian and was mocked for that at school. And that wretched meme of sticking your toothbrush down your throat is still going 30 years later. So teenage girls, that's what they're like. Um, They're super social. uh, They're very good knowing what other people's cues are. They they tend to um, harmonise on things, you know, all get crazes at the same time and so on, much more than the boys do. Right. Boys are just not so good at getting the social cues, I think, is one reason. <laughs> um, yeah, which, is, which, is, which is a defence on this. The girls are too good at picking it all up. Yeah. And then it all went completely mad on Tumblr about 2015. Gender just exploded all of Tumblr. The bits that weren't porn were about gender. And it was all this stuff about, like, what's your gender? What are your pronouns? Have you, have you interrogated your gender today? Have you thought about your gender? And this hit with these teenage girls who were in this place that grown-ups aren't. And they were, you know, right. they were not organised. They're all chatting to each other. They're talking absolute nonsense, telling each other massive misinformation about medical stuff and all these memes and you know, the same stuff. I got Tumblr kicked off all the stuff about cutting and about anorexia. They had huge amounts of that too. It, so it, it, it banned that from the Tumblr platform. It, it took years to get them to. Okay. but they had all these. They had all this stuff. Pro Anna, it was called. Was you know Anna being anorexia. Like all these pictures, an inspo, thinspo, they call it, thin inspiration, pictures of starving girls and, you know, how thin you looked in this angle and that angle and that, you know, and reposting wow. things and saying, I haven't eaten today. It was incredible. It was, there was such a contagion of so-called eating disorders and um, cutting okay. on Tumblr. But there was a gender contagion on Tumblr too. And we, okay, well, we that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, we know for sure, for absolute certain about the cutting and the eating disorders. I don't see why we deny it on the gender stuff. There were no girls turning up at teenage uh, at clinics, no teenage girls. Now there's loads of them. There was this thing that happened around 2015 on Tumblr where teenage girls went there en masse, told each other terrible things with no parental or adult oversight. It went completely crazy. And now look what we've got. We have the result of major mass social contagion on social media. And Abigail Shearer actually wrote and did studies based on this. And her, her hypothesis was, in fact, that this is a contagion. Yeah, so right? she... And then she got a lot of crap for that too, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, so she, she, um, she talked... <clears throat> the, the book is called Irreversible Damage. It's interesting to me that you used that expression earlier um, for the same reason that you did. She got a lot of criticism for everything she did. Abigail's a very good journalist. Abigail yeah. wasn't even writing about this sort of stuff. She was a Wall Street Journal opinion writer. I know. That's, she yeah. Got, yeah, she was... I mean, I was the finance editor for The Economist when I started writing about this stuff. 
Right. And sometimes someone tells you a story and you can't look away. And that happened to both of us. I don't know Abigail well, but we catch up every now and then. Um, yeah, a parent got on to her and said, you know, my, I think it was the school has started calling my daughter, my son. And they're sending her to a counsellor without telling me. And this counsellor says that she's really a boy and they're preparing to put her on hormones and so on. And I only found out any of this by accident. And Abigail went, thank can't be right. This is here in America? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This happens all the time. Yeah, yeah, this is happening loads. Schools regard themselves as in the position to do this. And she followed up on it, and I'm probably not going to tell her story right, so I won't try to invent too many details. But basically, she followed up on it. She found it was all true. She tried to get an article printed on it, and she was told, no, it was transphobic. And that, the same thing happened to me, and I looked and thought, um, that makes me want to write about it more. And by, <laughs> and by the way, yeah. and you'll agree with this because you're a journalist, any journalist who doesn't have that reaction should get the hell out of journalism. They yeah. shouldn't be in the profession. So she um, she looked into it and she discovered that um, this is happening all over. This is happening all over America. Schools were doing this, clinics were doing this, the kids were coaching themselves online. Uh, you know, activist teachers were supporting them. You know, I know people who were already put on hormones before their parents had any idea that anything was happening. And then the I can't believe that's even legal. Oh, it's happening in dozens of American states. No, it's, I, it's I not, don't doubt it. Just it's blowing, not out just, of nowhere. It's not out of nowhere that these um, red states, that these Republican governors are trying to ban treatment for under right. 18s. I, by the way, don't I don't approve of the way that's happening. I think it's just escalating it. Oh, but yeah. I know why they're doing it. They're doing it because crazy and terrible things are happening in gender clinics and schools. So you never have good solutions to anything in America. You just keep upping the ante. You well, keep that, it yeah. worse. You That's spiral cool. into worse and worse polarization. But anyway, I, they, yeah. they're not inventing this. This is happening. So yeah, this um, this pediatrician. Am I right that she's a pediatrician? She's a public health expert, and I think a pediatrician too, Lisa Littman. Yes. Had a similar experience. She told me I interviewed her for the book, and she said that she was on Facebook. She was a member of a local community Facebook group and somebody's kid came out as trans and she thought to herself, oh, lovely, isn't it lovely that we live in a world where you can do that and everyone's just mm-hmm. celebratory because she thought, like everyone does, that it's like coming out as gay. Right. And then another kid did. She said, that's unusual. I'm just pretty sure this is very, 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 very rare. And then another and another and another. So she started to look into whether there are clusters of gender identity disorder, confusion, trans identification, none. And the base rates are one in tens of thousands at the time. At the time, they said that one in 130,000 female people suffered from gender dysphoria and one in about 30,000 males. And in her little town, she was watching a half a dozen girls come out as trans in a very short time. So she did a study. And the study is good study. Um, It doesn't purport to give you anything like a rate. It can't possibly. It's an early exploratory study of the sort that's just meant to identify whether there's something here that we should look at more. So it's a bit like, um, you know, suppose you hear that there's a new virus in a place called Wuhan. You don't set up and do, um, you know, methodical longitudinal studies that give you a base right. rate. And you, you go and look and you try to find out, are there people who have a set of symptoms that we haven't seen together before? Yeah. That's where she was at. Something new was happening that she hadn't heard about. She went and looked. And yes, indeed, there were teenage girls in quite large, num- large numbers. It wasn't hard for her to find people. And the parents routinely said they didn't show any signs of gender distress beforehand. So people mock this and they wow. say they say that that's parents who just didn't know their kids. 
right? And I'm not saying that that's not always the case, that that's that not, not sometimes the case, right? But right. if you go and look at the diagnostic criteria for child gender dysphoria, it includes that your parents noticed that you were gender distressed. Like the way that you diagnose gender dysphoria in children is things like, you know, insisted they were members of the opposite sex, played always with mm. toys of the opposite sex, demanded to be dressed as members of the opposite sex, da da da, you know? So yeah. these people were saying, oh, the parents just didn't know their kids. Well, over here, the parents are being asked for the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. It's, it does my head in, this intellectual dishonesty. <laughs> so Lisa's yeah. study was a very good study. She ended up having to leave her job, and now she does other things because the attack was so ferocious. But it was a very good study, and it gave a name, Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria. That's what it was. Yeah. It's not a formal um, diagnosis. No, no. It's, it's like she's saying, um, what do they call um, HIV when they saw AIDS first? They were just like, you know, oh, the gay disease in San Francisco or something. Yeah. They had to try and pick a name yeah. for it. Um, and then they said, well, you know, it's immunodeficiency disorder, but it's acquired. So let's call it acquired immunodeficiency order, disorder. They still didn't know what the virus was. They didn't know how it was spreading. Right. They gave it a name. Right. right. Not until they discovered and isolated HIV did they know what caused it. That's where our OGD is. She's noticed there's something happening big that wasn't happening before. She's given it a label. And now she's saying to other people, will you come and study this, please? Come and, come and find out how this is happening. And they're saying, no, you bigot, shove off. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's crazy. And then that actually leads into another big problem that you've woven through the tapestry of your book, which is if we don't recognize terminology anymore if we have no actual terms that we can agree upon and there's no actual chronicle of what things mean then female only spaces disappear That's right? right and that that as a feminist and you're one of seven that i've read about and read books of and that is the it's it's in every single book yeah. It was in Julie Bendel's, it was in Kathleen Stock, it was in every book, it was in Abigail's. It's every single feminist that's out there saying, hey, hey, there's a lot going on here. We want to make sure that we treat these trans children or these, these confused children, if you will. We want to treat them with dignity and honor and respect. But when we get to the point where people are self-identifying and you have a lot of different stories in here which are harrowing, specific to female spaces, which I... And this is part of being a dude, I guess. My brother is a, a female advocate. He's an attorney. He represents women um, in divorce and family law and abuse and domestic violence and those kind of things. And so he said to me years ago, have you ever walked your car and been nervous? And I didn't understand what the, I didn't even get the question. I was like, what did you mean? Someone keyed it? You know, I was like, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. what do you mean? It's not there. Like, They've stolen it. Yeah. yeah. It's like, have you ever been scared to walk by yourself yeah and i said well no what do you mean and he's okay women are every day yeah and i was like i bullshit dude and he's like yeah, no, no, yeah. every day and i asked this to my wife i mean like, are you, she's like i'm scared every time and in san francisco there's you know the crime has gone up recently yes. after covid and all that i don't let my wife i don't let i don't control my wife i prefer her to walk with me yes, <laughs> anytime yes. we go someplace so that was something that was it was a you know 20 years ago he asked me this question and that was maybe the first time i paid attention to how females look at the world it's very different yeah and you're scared you're scared of us 
Well, of course you're scared of you. You do most of the murdering and the raping, you know? As a friend of mine says, you know, when you stop, you know, when you stop raping us, we'll stop talking about male violence, you know? So can we do it first? Your data proves that. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, men and women are different, you know? I mean, if we want to say what gender means, one of the things that gender means is that some men will force themselves on women because it's easier than trying to get women to go along with them. And, um, you know, I want to live in a world where there's no rape. Of course I do. I want all men to be perfect. I want the world to be perfect. I want everybody to be good. In the meantime, I wish to take precautions and I don't want taking those precautions to be made harder. Now, I should say the only reason for single sex spaces is not violence and rape. That's the most, that's the highlight uh, reason. That's the strong reason. It's also just that, you know, it's men who do all the voyeurism and all the flashing and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, A lot of people just feel more comfortable and dignified in single sex spaces. And that's men too, right? So sometimes people say to me, well, you know, what harm? What's your evidence of harm? if male people can identify as female and get into female-only spaces. And what they want me to do is to say so many rapes, so many, you know, whatever exposures, so many gropings, so many, you know, hidden cameras taking pictures and being sold for porn or whatever. Those things do happen, but every woman in those spaces who thought that she was going to only be with women and discovered that was not the case, every one of those women was harmed. So my answer is 100%. 100% of women are harmed. If you cannot be certain when you go into a female-only space that it's female-only, and you know that if a man tries to come in, you're not going to be able to get rid of him because he'll say, I'm a woman. And if you go to the security guard, you're the transphobe. Correct. All women, all women are harmed. The women who are harmed most are the women who have extra reasons on top of safety, dignity and privacy to care. And they're the women who have experienced rape or sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. They're the people who are abused as children. And they're the conservative religious women. So um, I, I wish we didn't leave these women out all the time. Like if you look at British and American equality law, Religion or belief is there as a protected characteristic in both of them. Muslim women have the right to spaces that allow them to move around the world in a way that practices their religion. The same with Orthodox Jewish women. So if you allow male people to identify into female-only spaces, those women will stop using them. And that's more people than the males who want to use those spaces. So straight away, we've excluded those women. We've excluded, you know, women who are unusually bashful, women from certain religions, women who've been raped or sexually abused. That's a lot of women. You know, women who are just, uh, you know, nervous or depressed or whatever. And, and really, lots and lots of women. And it's not about like, oh, well, I'll go until the bad thing happens. Like, I'm not going to go keep going to a changing right. room that I know is going to admit men if they ask or if they just go in, I'll stop using it, I'll self-exclude. So that's another reason we've no figures on this, because women self-exclude. I already know women who are self-excluding from spaces, from swimming pools and so on, because signs have gone up, you know, everybody uses the the, the, the space that's appropriate to their gender. Women see right. that, ask what it means, discover that it means that men can come in if they want, and they go. Wow, see, I never thought about it that way. That That's a great way to frame it because those spaces were there in order that we can move around in the world because this is still a male-dominated world not just because men are stronger but because men have historically run the world the first female toilets the first female changing rooms the first women-only swim sessions all of those things were so that women could move into the world and now we're having to move back into the home and people will even say that like when i make this argument they say well stay home then transphobe 
my God, those those spaces were specifically for me. They were so that I could take part in the world. And now you're saying a man wants to come in, so I better get the hell home. Well, and that that actually goes to the what I mentioned earlier in the sense of feminism for decades has fought for this equality, has, has fought to have these single spaces. And I don't know if you have read Dr. Jonathan Haidt's book. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. Yes, I have. Yes, it's excellent. It's a fantastic book. And and what I loved about it, I interviewed a couple professors on this specific topic because I thought it was an outrageous example of protecting kids and coddling them per his own vernacular. <laughs> and so I had a couple of my progressive friends, one of them was a professor, said, well, do you think it's a bad idea for trans kids or or blacks or lgbt to have their own space and i said all right i'll give you that i said but you know what i wouldn't give i said if i send my two little boys to berkeley and they come home from spring break and tell me that they had to go to safe space because of ideological or emotional harm because they saw someone with a red hat preaching the gop mantra i would immediately hug them and tell them that i'm sorry i failed you as a father and yeah. by the way, you now need to understand, here's my failure. I didn't make a man out of you. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And I'll probably get a lot of shit for that. What I mean by that is I've always said, you know, I would rather have my sons be the warrior in the garden than the gardener in the war. And so I'm preparing them for the road ahead. And I know there's other parents that are actually, you know, trying to prepare the road for the kids. And so that's a big piece for me. It's like, all right, safe space in certain categories made sense, but it's gone crazy here in the United States. Brown, so would, actually, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, I, I would say that I'm not talking about safe spaces in the term that Jonathan hates. No, I know. I, I'm just using that as an as almost yeah. a comparison where the liberal progressives here are saying that these people need single space. And it's yeah, not- Yeah, but they don't like women single spaces. Well, it's, I guess yeah, what I was trying to point out, it's, it's, it's incongruent. Exactly, this, exactly. So right? women, the female people aren't allowed to have female-only spaces, but you yeah. have Latino-only spaces. Right. Uh, yes. LGBT-only spaces, whatever. It's very bizarre. So now you can't have females? That, to me, that's where I was going. Very long-winded, but that's where I was going with that. I and the reason is because there are male people who want to come into female spaces. That It's that simple. There are males who want in. Yeah. And we, apparently, the greatest crime that a woman can commit is to say no to a man who wants something. So an unapologetic no from a woman is the biggest crime. And that is what gets you called a transphobe, a witch, a bitch, a turf, right. all those words. It's just saying no. Women who assert their boundaries experience a major pushback. <laughs> let's let's chat on that term for a bit. Turf. Because Yeah. Right? You want to talk about that for a sec? Because that was a new sure. term a couple of years ago for me. And and by the way, there's no male. Term. Equivalent, yeah. So it's a strange so, acronym. Um, I should say that it's an acronym that was invented by a woman, a woman who calls herself a feminist. So one of the things that's interesting to me is the people who are most keen on all this nonsense are young women. They're keener than young men. There's not just an age gradient, there's a sex difference too, which is funny right. because these people think that sex isn't real. So right. you have to ask yourself, like, why are one young women so very keen on all of this? And I do think a lot of it is because... Um, young women do like a bit of a virtue signal and this is the latest group that you can be that you can pet and coddle and that makes mm -hmm. young women feel good but i also think it's because the arguments for women only uh, spaces are ones that emphasize women's weakness like i don't want men in spaces 
where I would undress or where I am vulnerable because men are bigger and stronger than me and they're more violent than I am. And it'd be lovely to pretend that wasn't true, but I'm I'm a realist. So I think a lot of young women would prefer to pretend it's not true. And so they are, they're the ones who will say, you know, you're, you're, you're only excluding trans women from these spaces because like, and including from sport because you're bigger. Yeah. They don't want right. to admit that they're weaker and that they are vulnerable to rape and so on, because these things are very upsetting. It's very upsetting to women to fully accept how vulnerable we are. We'd rather not, but right. we are. So I think that's a big part of it. Young women wanting to, den- to deny um, their vulnerability. Also deny that they're going to turn into those boring, ugly, fat bitches. <laughs> you, know, you know, women in their 20s don't like to look at women in their 50s and think, God, that's me in 30 years time. Right. They'd rather pretend that women like me are just the ones who haven't looked after themselves, you know, who don't know how to please men, whatever the fuck it is. Sorry. Right. Um, no, no, there's, no, there's very little solidarity between the ages of women. So a lot of young women just think that it's better to denigrate women like me than to admit they're going to be me in 30 years' time. So TERF was invented by a woman like that. Uh, and it stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. So let's unpack that. Uh, a radical feminist is a specific school of feminism. It doesn't mean big feminist, very feminist. It specifically means feminism seen as a liberation movement that takes the oppression of women back to its roots. That's what the radical is. And that root is patriarchy. So it sees the world as a patriarchy and it sees women as needing liberation from the patriarchy. It's a liberation movement. By definition, only a woman can be a radical feminist. So just as the Black Panthers would have said, you know, a white person, maybe they can be an ally, maybe they can give us money, they can't be a Black Panther. So a man cannot be a radical feminist. Other branches of feminism think that men can be feminists, but not radical feminist. And a trans-exclusionary radical feminist is a radical feminist who sees the thing that we're talking about as male and female, not gender identities, and therefore excludes male people from the class of female. Now, I exclude male people from the class of female. They're separate categories. But anyway, that's the big crime. So a TERF is somebody who's a radical feminist and who denies that male people can, if they want, count as female. I'm not a radical feminist, but I am trans-exclusionary in that sense. I don't want to exclude trans people from life, public spaces, health, well-being, any of those things, jobs, anything. I just want to exclude male people from female-only spaces. Right. Which, you know, <laughs> that, that's my definition of exclusionary. So it's this acronym and it's an acronym. And then they'll say, oh, well, it's just an acronym. Yeah, well, how come the N word? That's just a different pronunci- pronunciation of Negro. Mm-hmm. But it's still a slur. Yeah. How come saying Pakistani, just the first four letters? That's just a shortening. It's still a slur. Slurs are things that are used as slurs. And right. turf tends to appear with shut the F up turf. Uh, you know, down with turfs. Turfs deserve the wall. Um, you know, kill the, the turfs. Kill the turf. Yeah. Um, you know, all these sorts of things. So it's clearly a slur in the way that it's used. In the same way that the reason that we say the N word is a slur is because of how it was used. It was used Correct. in a denigratory way, and it was often used in threats. It was used by the people who wanted, you know, to keep the Jim Crow rules or whatever. So. Yeah, so it's a slur. I mean, it is the modern day equivalent of which. Yeah. And to me, what the word turf means, because, you know, I'm not going to try and stop people from slurring me. They can say what they like. Um, I think they condemn themselves, not me. Same way that when someone uses the N-word, 
they're condemning themselves. They're not saying something bad about black people. They're saying something bad about themselves. That's true for someone who says turf as well. When someone says turf, what I hear is woman who says no. Okay, makes sense. And can you help me with the diversity of female-only spaces? Because I was surprised by how many there really were. And I think most people, like myself, don't really get how many incidences are necessary in that case. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I would say that I was not, you know, more aware of them than a man would be, but less aware than many women are. So, you know, I'm not somebody who particularly felt the need, say, for a woman doctor. It Mm -hmm. hasn't bothered me having male doctors, including for, um, you know, for fertility treatment, it was fine. Um, But other women wouldn't feel like that. Um, I've never needed a rape crisis centre. I've never needed a domestic violence shelter. I've never been in prison. Those are three spaces where women are really unusually vulnerable. Uh, Women in prison are drug addicted. They can't get away. Um, The incidence of domestic violence and rape among female prisoners is really high, like majority. So they're women who really do need to be kept in single sex spaces. Women in rape crisis centres often have a trauma response to male voices. So most rape crisis centres until very recently wouldn't even allow male children who had reached puberty to stay because the voice was triggering for other residents. Wow. They would have to put that that family in a a separate place. They would would not allow, you know, male plumbers or male builders unless there were no women around. You know, I didn't know that either. I haven't had these experiences at all, but plenty of women have, and we should respect yeah. them. And yeah. then there's the ones that are for um, inclusion of religious people. So it's quite common in London, in some boroughs where there are lots of Muslim women, to have a woman-only swimming session, because okay. Muslim women are, you know, they're less likely to exercise, they're less likely to get out, they have poor fitness levels, and so the council will put on a, a woman-only session because they know that the women will come to that; they won't come if it's mixed. Okay. Um, but then there's just the ordinary ones, toilets and changing rooms. Right. You know, women women change their tampons and they take their knickers down in, in public toilets. Like, yeah, okay, you're inside a cubicle. But, I mean, I've seen people look over the top of cubicles. Right. Um, there's hidden cameras in them. There's just the noise that you're making. Like, I don't think I kind of fancy making the noises that you make in a toilet. It's more embarrassing if there's a man near me than if there's a woman near me, you know? Right. Right. Men's toilets have urinals. I don't want to go in past a bunch of men weeing into a urinal. And changing rooms, very obvious, you take off your clothes. So, right. right. So, so, yeah, there's a lot of different situations in which, in order to live fully in the world, you do need to be able to go into single-sex spaces. And if you can't, a lot of women will end up staying home. And that was the mm. point, that we were allowed to get out and about. Yes. Well... That's, that's, thank you. Because I mean, that was something again, where I have never had to think that way. So it's, I've never thought oh, of, you know, I grew up in locker rooms with all my sports teams and we were just guys in the shower, you know, and, and it's. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Imagine it's all the while you were naked in the shower, you would have been very embarrassed. <clears throat> Most likely, or we would have. <laughs> Been very proud. I don't know. I mean, we're yeah. I think you. I think you'd have felt embarrassed, but you wouldn't have felt scared. And no, you'd I wouldn't have felt known, scared. You'd also no. have known she was more embarrassed than you. Correct. Well, that's so, the scared part. That's a good point. And, you yeah. know, I never realized that women are scared of us when they don't know us as a species, right? That's like, and that t- makes total sense. I just, I was just clueless, as most dudes are. We don't 
focus on like because it's it's we haven't lived that life I also, some men don't listen. You listened when you were told, but some men don't. I call it high tone hearing deficiency. The blokes who become selectively deaf when a woman is talking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. We have a lot of problems as as males, but that's, I think that really was for me. And even some of my buddies that I've talked to, I'm like, have you ever thought of that dude? What? You ever been scared walking to your car? Yeah. Yeah. I I gave a talk to a bunch (laughs) of um, legislators here, MPs a while ago. And I was talking about single-sex spaces, and one of the men, a man in his 30s, he said, um, sorry, you said that um, single-sex spaces exist partly for women's safety, but um, that's not right. Uh, like, uh, yeah, that's exactly why they exist, because, you know, women aren't safe if they're in enclosed spaces with men that they don't know and things. And he went, no, I don't think that's right. Is that really why? And he came up to me afterwards, and he said, I'm really puzzled by that. I, I have no idea that that's why there are single-sex toilets and changing rooms. I just, and he went off still sort of shaking his head and thinking, I don't think that's right. There were lots (laughs) of other people trying to ask me questions. I wanted to go after him and say, stop, come back. Tell me what you thought they were for. (laughs) (laughs) I'm completely puzzled. This man was a blooming doctor as well. Okay. Makes me feel a little better. Because it it is genuinely a, a, a blind spot, I think, for men in general. We just don't... It's funny, it's just men. No, it is for some men and not for others. I think a lot of men instinctively know, and often it's the men who have teenage daughters. So, yeah, so a a father of teenage daughters is probably the person who is the most useful in this fight to keep single-sex spaces for a number of reasons. One, men's speech is much less policed than women's speech is on this. A man can speak in a way that I'm not allowed to speak. He's allowed to call the male people boys. He's allowed to say things like, you know, you're telling me that a teenage boy is in my daughter's changing rooms. Whereas if I say that, I'll be told it's not a teenage boy, it's a beautiful trans girl. And so men speak, yeah, so they're allowed to speak more clearly. And um, the second thing is that men know what men are like. Yes. And a lot of women are remarkably naive about what men are like. Like, yes, they're scared of into their car, but, you know, they're selectively ignorant of what men can be like. And men hear men talk when there's no women around. So that well, man who's thinking about his teenage daughter, he's thinking about what men can be like. And I've then he gets really change. angry. I've seen that change with a lot of buddies who have teenage daughters, you know, when yes. we were young and carousing. You know, those those are not the fun conversations when the guy has a beautiful 15-year-old daughter now, right? He's yeah, yeah, very exactly, protective. exactly. The sorts of things that you might have said when you were 17 about 15-year-old girls. Yeah. That father of a 15-year-old girl knows very well what 17-year-old boys said because he was one of them. Correct. And now, he, you know, he cares about his daughter, obviously, you know, as much as he cares about her, more than he cares about himself. He's enraged. A lot yeah. of men, um, the first woman that they ever really identify with and really truly care about is their daughter. You know, they love their wife, that's fine, but they see their wife as kind of their helpmate. The wife is there to flatter their ego and cook their dinner or whatever. They may love her, but, you know, it's a sort of not an equal relationship. Then that man has a daughter and he thinks that she's just God's gift to the world. And he wants everything <laughs> for her. He wants the best husband. He wants, you know, Harvard Law School. He thinks that yeah. she's going to be a beauty queen, whatever. He's completely invested in and identified with her. And then some boy wants to come and take her swim medal. And to come into her changing room and, you know, those men are a force. I want more of those men. I want more of those men out there. Well, we we have a lot of those here in the United States. Because that's happening uh, specifically with legislation around, and it's going to be passed in numerous states now, of trans females not competing. 
Yeah, and it's men who do it. I mean, men are the ones who have the power. Men are the ones who ones who have the voice. Men is more men in politics and so on. But I really think that thing of men thinking about their teenage daughters and going ballistic at the unfairness of this. There, there are mothers doing this too. I'm really not saying like most of the people who are active in this are women. I'm just saying those are a particular important force, mm-hmm. and they're 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 very useful to us. And I want more of them. Let me ask you this too. I, there's a delineation. I <clears throat> I coach youth sports for the last five years in soccer, baseball, basketball. And it doesn't matter to mix kids at whatever age, eight, nine, 10, because I have two little girls on, well, I don't coach, I don't coach this team anymore, but there's two little girls on my 10 year olds soccer team now who are unbelievably good athletes and they're 10. So they're Mm -hmm. the two girls and then there's 12 boys, Mm -hmm. but they're, they hold their own. They're fantastic. Mm -hmm. The law that just passed in Utah doesn't allow anyone trans at all. So if you're a little boy who's now transitioning and and identifying as a little girl, you're not allowed to play on the male team anymore at all. You're a little boy who's transitioning to be a little girl. Sorry, if you're a little yeah, if you're a little boy, you're not allowed. Yeah, if you're transitioning, you're not allowed to play with the girls' team. Sorry, thank you. Yeah, so I know my question. Yeah, you were going to say, well, your question is, is that right? Is that fair? Well, in the sense of, yeah, because for me, the big thing around competitive sports, male and female, is testosterone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Carol Hooven was the first, like, understanding of that in an evolutionary biology way, where she said you cannot take the brick out of the man. And I'm paraphrasing her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That made a lot of sense to me because you can't, you immediately know when someone's going through puberty as a man. Women is kind of, you see it more, but you feel it with a kid. And, and you can see it in the explosiveness of their athletics. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's nothing right? like... It's male massively different. Yeah. yeah, it reminds so, me of those um, fast-forward videos where they show a tree, you know, going from winter <laughs> to summer. <laughs> yeah. That's it, what it happens that doing. fast. Yeah, yeah, it does. So, like, yeah. the, so the, I was wondering, because this is a discussion we were having with some, with some friends of mine, because I've told everyone that I'm diving into this as a as a business for the next year, probably. And they're like, oh, well, what about this? What about... So they throw me yeah, on a yeah. And there was a great article in the Philadelphia Inquirer that talked about this specific to the new laws that are going to follow Utah, that they're not allowing any kids at any age to do that. And I was like, okay, so maybe that's an overreach. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Because I don't think the kids, I, I think they're competitive at a fair level until puberty hits. Yeah, that's right. Um, I would say that it's probably overreach, but it's very hard to write laws. You shouldn't have to write laws about this. People shouldn't be doing stupid things. Um, And once you write these things down, it's very hard to make exceptions for everything. So I have a particular interest in this because, as I say, I have siblings who are very sporty. So um, I'm one of nine kids. I'm the eldest of nine kids. And my younger brothers and sisters all play cricket at a very high level. Five of them played for Ireland. And two of them became professional. And one of them was captain of Middlesex and Sussex here in England. And my youngest sister um, spent several years playing six months in Australia professionally and then coming back to Ireland because that's what you do if you're in cricket. You chase the sun and you, <laughs> play, you, know, you play on the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere. So she did oh, that. Wow. And when they were little, so that sister, she's one of twins, they played on the boys' teams because there wasn't a girls' team for kids that young though I think I'm probably muddling this horribly but they played first on a very little girls team and then the way it went was it was under nines and then under 15s for girls because of the numbers but when you're 10 like the the 15 year olds are very big 
Yeah, so they wanted you. to play. I, I've probably got the, the age cutoffs wrong, but anyway, there was a, there was one group that was missing for the girls. So they went yeah. and played for the boys. But the thing is, they were the best. This was pre-pubescent, but they were really good. The, and so as soon as they started, the girls were the best. The two girls, yeah. Now this is still yeah. pre-puberty. They were just better than yeah. the boys. As right. soon as they started winning, other teams started to complain. And they had to be kicked off the boys' team, but there wasn't a girls' team for them. They had to play like with kids who were four years older. So that was very unfair. Yeah, that is. Um, I suppose what I think is, you know, obviously there are cases like that that are totally unfair. But, you know, you said puberty. What age is puberty? For some kids, that's nine. You're right. That can happen as early as 11. Yeah. Oh, it can happen at nine. If it happens at eight or nine, you know, boys are a bit later than girls, but um, usually, but not always. So that's the first thing. That's Once puberty important. hits. Now, yeah. okay, that's true in, in their own teams as well, but actually coaches will tend to manage teams. If there's some boy who's six foot four and the other kids are all five foot three, they'll probably get that kid to play up in the age, you know? Yeah. Um, another thing is that part of the reason that people get kids to play on the wrong sex team is as part of a social transition. They're, they're, they're telling... Part of their own transformation, okay. Yes, so you've got a boy four or five everyone he's everyone is told he's a girl mm. and he's presented to everyone as a girl of course he's going to have to go on the girls soccer team he's not going to go right. on the boys team right. and he's accepted because as you say there's no unfairness here but he's right. not a girl right. and what you're doing is you're cementing this issue that puberty is going to be horrifying because at puberty he's going to have to switch back isn't he because he no mm. longer looks like a girl so i i really really don't think that people should be lying to or about children's sex at all. I think if there's a girl, everyone knows she's a girl. There isn't a soccer team for her. I mean, here soccer is a boys game. I know it's mostly a girls game in the States. Um, there's no team for her. Of course she should be allowed to play. We have an entire film that was made about it called Bend It Like Beckham about girls who wanted mm-hmm. to play football. Um, and, and likewise, if a boy wants to play netball and there's no boys team and he's pre-pubescent, of course he should be allowed to play, but he's going to get kicked out as soon as puberty hits, right? right. But if that boy is pretending he's a girl or the girl is pretending she's a boy, it's part of the social transition. It's part of the lie. And it's not mm. good for the child. Like, you know, think of that little boy who thought he was going to be able to get pregnant. You know, it's all... Yeah, happens. no, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. I bet you that little boy played sport as a girl. It was part of the lie. Yeah, no, that's great. That thanks. Because I was, I was, I hadn't thought about that one, but that makes a lot of sense. It's hard to demarcate puberty uh, unless you're, unless it's like first and second grade. You can be like, if people had started, if people had never started doing this stupid thing, we wouldn't have to write these stupid laws. Yeah. And I wish we could back away from the stupid things that we're doing, so we don't have to write these blunt laws that end up catching people they weren't meant to. You know, they'll put people in nasty situations and so on. But we shouldn't have started doing this thing of lying to and about children about sex. No, I'm with you. And, you know, I will let you go because it's been two and a half hours. And I just, I could talk to you for 10 hours on this. And so I, if you, I know that you're now in, you're not in sabbatical, but you're on leave from The Economist. That's doing right. what you want to do. Um, hopefully I can bring you back. <laughs> Sometimes. I mean, they're planning to. It's, it's it's definitely a leave of absence. They want me back, so you know. Yeah. Very no, I, hopefully, I can bring that. you back. Is what I was saying. Oh, I'd is, love is, to. And yeah, yeah, when the book, the book was... came out first in July, I had a whirlwind of podcasts, and I, I loved it. I really loved yeah. it. But I was talked out after about a month. I bet. I watched and now a lot it's of been them. a dry spell, and I haven't talked to anyone. And I'm like, <laughs> can I go on some podcasts? <laughs> I want to talk well, to what people. I'm actually hoping to do, and we can talk about this off camera, but I 
what I want to do with this is I, as an expert, part of what we're doing at True 30 is we're trying to be objective in our reporting and bringing on experts and say, hey, this is what certain people think. And then I'll have someone who disagrees. And yeah. so, you know, at that level, we can have a debate. I don't know if you've ever watched Intelligence Squared. Yes, um, yes, absolutely. They, they refused platforms. to have me on, by the way. Okay, they, so invited I won't. Me on. <laughs> they invited me on before the book and then they canceled me because that said, happens. That happens. Yeah. And I mean, they You'll really have to go to the Manhattan Institute. Manhattan Institute will take you because uh, it's very yeah, conservative, libertarian. It's non, nonpartisan, and I really like them. So I was really annoyed. I do too. They said, no, that uh, surprises me. Yeah, but well, they, they, they even me. said why. They said that there would be a Twitter storm. They said that their young yeah. staff would object. And they said yeah. that they might lose some sponsorship from American companies. They literally said those things. The guy who runs Intelligence it's Squared, right up front. Intelligence Squared, he is um, a former war correspondent who has written about his experiences in Serbia and Afghanistan, and he has won awards for bravery in journalism. And he wasn't willing to have a middle-aged woman who says sex is real and that that's <laughs> consequential on. Such cowards. So I did Sam much. Harris too? Didn't Sam oh, Harris I asked about, I mean, well, you know, I... I, I I can't talk about the people who refused to have me on who have the right to oh, refuse. Sorry, to I can redact that. Spirit invited me, booked it in, didn't even tell me that they were cancelling. I got onto them and said, you haven't sent me a link. And they were like, uh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel completely free to say that. Well, good. And I, like I said, I, I'm fascinated by the subject. I think what your, your book was a true work of force. I, it was the amount of research and the way that you put it together in a very cogent story with examples, the matrix obviously being one of my favorite because it helped everyone at the lay level understand kind of how this dynamic. Uh, I'm so glad that worked for you. About. It really you got did. exactly what I wanted from it. it. It worked very well. And so let me shut the camera off. Thank you again, Helen. You're it was very wonderful welcome. to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time. Big hugs.